My name is Ian. I help with the Christianity Explained course. The reading this morning is Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 20. If you don't have a Bible, there are free Bibles at the back of the church. You're free to take one and follow along. Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground but when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Hey, keep your Bibles open to that, uh, to that page uh, as we go through it. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you just came in uh, today, we are going through uh, the book of Acts in the Bible. And for the last few weeks, we've been seeing how the gospel is growing so rapidly uh, through multiple conversions. It's, it's really mass conversions. We see thousands of people uh, getting converted in the book of Acts as, as, the, church, um, as the church started. Uh, but suddenly, suddenly, the gospel writer, Luke, he, he narrows down on individual gospel con uh, conversion stories. Uh, in chapter 8, you can kind of flick there. Uh, there's the Ethiopian eunuch converted to, through the teaching of, the, of Philip. 
Uh, in chapter 10, we hear about the conversion of, of a Roman soldier, a, a centurion uh, converted with the help of Peter. And here in chapter 9, in between, we are going to look at the conversion of the Apostle Paul, uh, who, was, who, who was known Saul uh, previously. Uh, but before I begin, allow me to uh, say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, for your glory and the benefit of your people, we ask that you speak to us now through your word. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, give us conviction and encouragement that Jesus is our Lord. Amen. Uh, you know, uh, this year is my 12th year in, uh, in full-time ministry, and it's, it's been a, a wonderful uh, privilege to hear and witness uh, hundreds of different conversion uh, stories. Uh, I've heard testimonies from teenagers how they've found their identity uh, in Christ. Uh, young adults who, who completely turned their life around in, uh, on, on living for themselves, and now they live for God. I've even heard uh, elderly who confessed finally finding peace uh, in Jesus. And I've seen people from other religions getting ex excited on discovering truth. And every now and then I would hear a testimony that has a supernatural kind of element or experience in there. It might have been a, a dream from God. Uh, some of them have heard an audible voice from God. Uh, other ex others experienced an incredible miracle before coming to faith. And see, today we come across one of the most incredible testimonies of, of life transformed by Jesus. Because in verse 1, we, we read that we are told Saul, uh, later named Paul, goes out on a mission to persecute and really kill followers of Jesus. But then by the end of the reading, verse 20, we are told that he is now preaching that Jesus Christ is God. That he went from one extreme to the other. And many would say that because he received this special, special revelation of Jesus appearing before him with the bright lights and all that, we think that Paul's conversion is so different. And that's why he became the biggest advocate for Christianity. But today I want to show you that even though that this is a special and supernatural in many ways, Paul's conversion is still similar in the most crucial aspects of Christian conversion. That Paul's conversion, it's, though it's unique and amazing in, in many ways, it still has the same aspects of every conversion. It needed, uh, it needed I, I believe, three things to make it a genuine Christian conversion. And this is why the gospel is unstoppable. Not because of, of supernatural stories, but really that the gospel works in, in, in similar ways in every individual. That if you are a Christian, you need to hear this because you need to see if your conversion story lines up. If you are an evangelist, if you love ministry, you need to hear this because you, you need to know how to lead other people to Christ. And if you're not a Christian today and you're here sitting, it's your first time in church, it's great that you're here because today I want to show you what it really takes to become a Christian. You know, that... that, that you know, it's true, what's true of Paul's conversion is really true for all of us. And the three things that I want to point out today is this. The confrontation of your belief, all these three things need to happen. The confrontation of your belief, the examination of the resurrection, and you need to understand your unification with Christ. Okay? You need to see three things. So firstly, let's go through it. Confrontation of your belief. The first thing that happens in a genuine conversion 
is that you get confronted by the truth. That the gospel comes in and suddenly it breaks down your entire belief system. Here's a religious Jew. Again, remember that Paul is a devout Pharisee, meaning his whole life he's been studying God. He's devoted his life to knowing and serving God. But look at Paul's response when he encountered the risen Lord. He didn't say, finally, I've met you. He says, who are you, Lord? He was surprised. It means that he had no idea who God really is. His, his whole life, he's been studying who God is, but his knowledge wasn't enough to really know him. And so we ask, how, how can a religious, devout Jew not know who God really is? How, how can he not know that Jesus is the promised Savior of the Old Testament? Because Paul had put God in a box. He had all these understandings of, of who God is, but he packaged him in the way that he wants, he wants God to be. That, for example, he, Paul knew that God is perfect and he's holy. And, and to get to God, you, you need to obey the law. You need to offer the right sacrifices in the temple. But never did Paul ever imagine that instead of going to God, that God will come down. So he never expected God becoming man and living on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. His whole life is about him getting to God. Another example is that Paul knew how powerful God is. He studied God's miracle in a Jewish writing. He, he heard about what he did to the Egyptians, to the Babylonians, to the Assyrians, and so on. And so his expectation of the promised Messiah or the, the promised Savior is not someone dying on the cross but someone conquering nations. And see, you can be a religious fanatic like Paul and not know God at all. That you can be a devout, even Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim, your entire upbringing, and suddenly here's the God of the Bible, here's Jesus saying, I'm God. I am the only way, the truth, and the life. And here, here's Jesus saying, all your life, you have been wrong. And when you're confronted with a real God, like Paul, your response is not, hey, I know you, but who are you, Lord? And so even if you were brought up in the Christian faith and your whole life you've been hearing what Jesus has done, that you've been to Sunday school, you've, you know all the stories and the miracles of Jesus, but in the end, if you have put Jesus in a box and you never really let those uh, stories penetrate your heart, your conscience, and so you have your own set of expectations of what he should be doing and what he is like. In the same way, you might know something about him, but you don't really know him. Or maybe, again, if it's your, if it's your first time at church today and you didn't have a religious upbringing. And, and chances are you still, you still have these preconceived ideas of who God is. Um, I remember I had a friend who, who believes that, that there is a God somewhere. And he says that he believes that God is, he just wants everything. He wants us to enjoy everything in life. He, he just wants us to have fun. And that's why he gave us life. That he wants us to enjoy the way we want it. Now, you might agree with that because it sounds nice. But can you see why we like that idea? Because all of us will have our own theory and our expectation of what God should be like. A God that we can neatly put in a box. A God that we can control. A God that we can be comfortable with. That even for Paul, Paul wanted a God that he can easily define on his own terms. 
a God that he can get to using religious works, a God that he can easily find. That's why one Baptist pastor said, the moment we think we figured God out, we've boxed him in and reduced him to a mere idol of our imagination. It means that he's not the real God anymore. He's not the real God that you're worshiping. You've created an idol for yourself. But here's the real God who went after Paul. Remember, Paul was not looking for him because Paul thought that he found him, but Jesus went for him. He knocked him to the ground, blinded him completely, destroyed his worldview, that everything that Paul knew about God, everything that he's been trying to do for God his whole life is suddenly torn down. That's conversion. That's repentance. Conversion means that encountering a God who confronts your own man-made ideas of who he is and how he should act. A God with his own reality. That's how you know when you suddenly realize that God is not the God you've created. It's when something about him that really, really confronts you. And when you're confronted by God, you're confronted by the real you, that God reveals your heart. And so you learn that there are things in your life that you, that, you, that you don't want to be true. Things in your life that you love but you don't want to get rid of. Things in your life that, that, that only make sense to you. And suddenly God comes in, he reveals himself, and he says, sorry, but you are wrong. And the first thing you ask, who are you, Lord? Because like Paul, you thought you knew God or you thought you, you know what God should be like and suddenly you're dumbfounded with the real God in your face. Have you had that experience? Have you had the, the shock and the confrontation when you read the, your Bible and you say to yourself, this is not the God that I would have imagined on my own. Or you might even say, this is not the God that I am comfortable with. See, this can happen in an instance like Paul, or it can happen gradually, but regardless of the time span, it needs to happen or else there's a good chance that, that the God that you believe in is nothing but a God of your own creation. That's the first step. The second step is you need to exa examine the resurrection. What I mean is that the, re the, the, the Christian conversion is not based on your personal experience, but on truth of the resurrection, of, of verifiable facts. Conversion is not blind faith, but it has to be based on rationality. Uh, because a lot of non-Christians might, might read this passage and they say, hey, you know, if, if Jesus appears to me before me and he, he starts talking to me, then like Paul, I might believe. That if only I have a Damascus experience like Paul, then that will win me over. Listen, in, in Luke 16, there's a really uh, incredible story when Jesus tells the story of a rich man and there's a poor man uh, and they both died. Uh, it says that the poor man is up in heaven while the rich man was in hell. Now, the rich man, very interestingly, he requested Abraham to send someone to his family who are still alive. He said to send someone so that they will repent and believe so that they won't end up in the same place as him. But Abraham replied... If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. It's saying a supernatural experience will not be enough if, to make you believe on the God of the Bible. 
that Abraham is saying, if, he, if they do not listen to, to the Moses and to the prophets, he's referring to the revelations of God in the scriptures. He's saying that your best bet in having a saving faith is not a supernatural experience, but an, but an, exam, an examination of what God has revealed in his written word. Now, that is profound because it's really saying that experience is not the key to believing. It's not a supernatural encounter that's really going to save you, that will win you over. That even for Paul, we are told that he saw a bright light and he heard a voice, that he had this supernatural experience. But we're told in verse 7 that the man traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see any, anyone. Now, you might think, why did the gospel writer look like, firstly, how did he know what the man heard? And, and why does he need to add that in the story? See, Paul, I'm sure when he was blinded, he, he would have asked the men and asked them, hey, did you see or hear the same thing? And Luke added the man's experience in there to prove that Paul wasn't hallucinating. See, if I tell you that last night I was driving and an alien spaceship landed in front of me, what would you say? Well, you say, well, it's probably not a, an alien spaceship. It's probably just drones flying. Someone's flying drones around. Or you might say, maybe you are hallucinating. Maybe you are dreaming. Or maybe you're, you're, you're drunk. You're on drugs. But if I say there's, there's two other people in the car and they saw exactly the same thing, the story becomes more believable. It's, it's verified. That's what the writer is doing is that he's, he's, he's authenticating the story for you. He's saying that Paul wasn't alone, that two other people heard the same thing. And I'm sure Paul had to make sure that he wasn't dreaming. He asked the man with him if it was all real. And so for the next three days of being helpless and blind, he would have wrestled with it all. And this is why the Bible is full of stories. It's, it's, it's a historical narrative based on verifiable historical facts. That's why in, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul was explaining the gospel, he, he explains all what the gospel means and, 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 and how it affects us. But then he spends a lot of time saying this. He said that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he, was, he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. What's Paul doing there? He's grounding the message of the gospel on the historical facts that the resurrection happened, and there are thousands of witnesses that are still alive. He's saying, go ask these men, because they also saw the resurrection. Paul is saying, I'm a witness, and many other are witnesses of this. And this is why Christianity took off in the first century, not because it was exciting, but because it was true. And many people during that time were able to verify that truth. And so if you had a supernatural experience when you come to faith, again, that's great. I'm not discounting your experience at all. If you had a dream, if you heard a voice, if you had an overwhelming feeling, that's, that's great for you. And add that to your testimony, please. Because God does work in different and miraculous ways. But, but don't forget that most other religion, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, even Islam, 
It's based on someone else's experience that cannot be verified. But the foundation of the Christian faith stands and falls on the history of whether or not Jesus Christ died and came back to life. As Bigley Graham said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation and the cornerstone of the Christian faith. That when Paul was converted, he started preaching and people were getting converted. Now, do you see most of the conversion in the book of Acts is not through a miraculous event like Paul, but it is through preaching. But it doesn't mean it's less special or less important. As Romans 10 says, that faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. That the preaching of the word of God is the conventional way God is made known. And for Paul, he had to wrestle with this truth. He had to verify on his own if it's true. This is why it's, so, you know, it's, it's okay to, to have lots of questions in Christianity. Because you might be asking, how, how can a good God allow evil and suffering? How, how can God send people to hell? But remember, Paul had a lot of questions. He had a lot of problems. He was a Jew. So throughout the Old Testament, he kept saying, there's only one God. There's only one God. There shall, you shall have no other gods. And then Jesus comes in. He says, I'm God. He's talking to the Father. So is there, he's probably asking, is there one God or is there two? Well, he didn't say Christianity must be wrong then because I can't understand, you know, how many gods are, there is. But what happens on the road to Damascus, Jesus says, soul, soul. You know, Jesus didn't say, soul, soul, let me explain the Trinity to you. No, Jesus said, I'm here. I'm alive. Paul doesn't understand the Trinity. He doesn't understand how God could let go of the, of the temple sacrifices and the tabernacle and all that, as we mentioned. But here's Jesus before him, speaking to him, and he's alive. And so Paul is thinking, I don't understand the Trinity, but Jesus is alive, so it must be true. And everything that Jesus taught and claimed, it must be true as well. I don't know the answers to them, but all I know is that he's alive and he's standing in front of me. That the minute Paul understood that, that the resurrection is true, that he was raised from the dead, that he then lost control of his life. He got converted. He didn't belong to himself anymore. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, in the same way, you might be saying, you know, I can't believe in Christianity because look at all the evil and suffering in the world. What about those people who've never heard of Jesus? What about God sending people to hell? Again, they are all good questions. But let me ask you this question. Was Jesus raised from the dead? If he was, then I don't know about the, the accurate answers to those things. I'm not saying they're insignificant, but the very question you need to ask is, did Jesus raise from the dead? Because if he did, then everything else will slowly fall into place. And if he wasn't, then you can question everything else in the Bible. But see, conversion means that you accept that the resurrection is real and that he becomes the, and that becomes the very foundation of everything else. The resurrection is the assurance that everything else is true and that, that God will one day work all things for our good and his glory as he did for Jesus Christ. Now, lastly, lastly, you need to understand the heart of the gospel. That is, you need to understand our union with Christ. You know, I believe what really confronted Paul is when Jesus asked him, 
why are you persecuting me? Because Paul would have thought, I wasn't persecuting you. I was on my way to persecute them. Who are you? And you have to ask, you know, why didn't Jesus just say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? Or why are you persecuting my people? Why Why didn't he say that? Jesus Christ said something that really took hold of Paul, I believe, and became the center of Paul's theology in his letters. Uh, see, the very first thing that Paul learned from Jesus is that Jesus is so united with those who follow him that, that he is in them. Jesus is saying that I have such intimate relationship and radical union with my people that whatever that is true of them is true of me. And whatever is true of me is true of them at the same time. But for example, in Romans 6, he says this, Paul said, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Uh, another one in Ephesians, Paul said, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Take note, it's not... It's not future tense, not, not someday you will be raised with him and someday, someday you will be glorified and so on. He says that we have been raised. We have been seated in the heavenly, in the, in the heavenly place. It's past tense and it's still happening now. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be converted? It means to be in union with Christ, which means that God treats you as if you have lived that perfect life that Jesus lived and that you have died the penalty for sins and that when Jesus is raised to a place of honor, that if you believe in him, God treats you as if you have, if you have accomplished everything that Jesus had accomplished, that, that he loves you, God loves you as if you were as beautiful as Jesus, that he rewards you as if you were the, the greatest treasure, you're the great person as Jesus was. That's what it means to be born again. Not something that you earn, it's something that you receive because Christ is in you. You know, tomorrow Australia is playing against Denmark, which made me think of uh, Princess Mary. I wonder who she's going she's, she's gonna to be going for. Um, but I was thinking of this, that, you know, Princess Mary of Denmark, she was basically a real estate agent back in Tasmania before she became a princess, you know. Um, and because of her union in marriage, because of her union... She received instant wealth, instant reputation, instant prestige, honor, a name, a title. She inherited royalty. And she didn't earn it. She didn't work for it. She received it because of her union to Frederick. Church, how much more are you inheriting because you are in Christ? Righteousness, yes. Glory, you'll get it. Honor, power, eternal life, security, The eternal love of the Father. Ephesians says that we get every spiritual blessing in Christ. But see, unless you understand that Christianity is a gift, Christianity is not something that you achieved, it's received. When you realize that when I believe in Him, what's true of Him is true of me, that will convert you. That will change you. For example, just one example. There's, there's huge implications of what it means to be united with Christ. One example uh, or one application is that, you know, one of the biggest mental health problems today is anxiety. Uh, a lot of people are stressed. A lot of people are, are, are losing sleep. Uh, you know, we are a generation that we are more anxious than ever. And often we get anxious of what people think of us. 
we get scared. Uh, like we, get, we are scared people of not, that people are not gonna accept us, people are not gonna like us, that we're always on social media, but our social life is really on tatters, uh, that we can't sleep because we're worried about what our friends, our boss, our colleagues are gonna think about us, that our identity is so based on people's perception, right? You know, as, as Ken said in the Barbie movie, I just don't know who I am without you, that we're stuck on people's perception of us, that our identity is based on that. And so the solution that society gives us, and really the message of the Barbie movie too, is that, well, you do you. You don't care about what people think. You do, you do what makes you happy, what you believe, who you are. But just do what works for you. Now, I don't have to explain why that's very problematic as well, uh, of not caring of what people think, because then we, we, we end up living in isolation. But look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4. He said that I care very little if I'm judged by you or if I'm judged by any human court. Then he says, indeed, I do not even judge myself. He's saying that I don't even care what I think because he knows that his own heart can condemn him. Now, how can he say this? Unless he stands on what God the Father thinks of what, of what the God the Father thinks of his son. And God the Son is in Paul. So the foundation of his identity is based on his union with Jesus Christ. You know, when the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is our high priest. Now, often we don't really think much of that because we don't really have the temple anymore. We don't see the significance of the tabernacle and all that. But this picture might really help and appreciate what it means. You know, when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred space, he wore a breastplate. And on the breastplate, there's 12 beautiful uh, precious stones. And every one of the stones, there's, there's uh, the name of the, the tribes of Israel engraved in them. So that the high priest had engraved over his heart the names of the, of the people of God. And he bore those names before God. And when the Bible says that Jesus is our high priest, in some way, that's, that's how he gets the metaphor across. That your name, when you believe in him, is engraved over his heart, and he bears your name before the Father. When the Father beholds you, he sees Jesus. He sees a gem. He sees an absolute beauty. And do you see Paul knows that he says like who cares what other things he i don't even care what i think he cares what god thinks of him through jesus christ he's saying that the only opinion that matters to him is what god thinks and when god sees him he only sees perfection righteousness glory and beauty do you see that in yourself have you really accepted that the grace of god is not something that you earn but it's something that you receive through god's union with you because you don't need a supernatural testimony to have an extraordinary transformation like Paul. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the revelation of your word. We thank you that you work in many wonders, but we thank you that you are faithful in all things and we can rely on you uh, through your promises in your word. But Lord, help us to, to really figure out what it means for us to be united with your son. Help us to use that to form our identity. Help us to use that to, to form our purpose and, and our mission in life, uh, to, to help it form our, our self-esteem. Lord, we, we pray that we will have a genuine conversion 
because we know that uh, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. But help us, O oh Lord, to understand what it means for Christ to be in us. This we pray in his name. Amen.